HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. In full transparency, I love dipping my fries in my milkshake when I go to fast food restaurants. In full transparency, I eat jalapenos on everything, including peanut butter sandwiches. In all transparency, I have eaten horse and kangaroo, and I love chicken feet. In full transparency, I'm not a cook, but for work, I lead cooking demonstrations. When I served food to the public, immediately a child threw up, so I thought I'd poisoned everybody. Turned out he just had heat exhaustion. In full transparency, there's probably at least one cat hair in everything I cook at home. In full transparency, I had three Arnold Palmer slushies last week, but no regrets. They were absolutely necessary to survive the heat wave. In full transparency, I like to eat bacon raw right out of the package. Coming clean. Opening up. Seeing right through. Today, we're talking all things transparent in the food world. From restaurateurs shaking things up with radical financial disclosure to an enchanting clear dessert, our stories today explore the many meanings of transparency. What can we learn when we've got nothing to hide? I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three on HRN. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. Transparency can be literal, as in something you can see through, or figurative, freely sharing one's feelings and intentions. Our first story today looks at both definitions by way of vodka. Vodka is the number one selling liquor in the United States, but it's become controversial for some in recent months. Elba Tamara Rodriguez talks to one bar owner in New York about how a desire for moral transparency is affecting the global industry 
of this transparent spirit. In February, Russia shocked an already jaded world when it invaded Ukraine. Stark footage of dead bodies and mass graves were televised. Refugees were fleeing by the thousands while others stayed behind to fight for their country. Feeling helpless and desperate to do something, CEOs and small business owners started boycotting Russian products. By this time, bars around the world were taking Russian vodka and what they believed to be Russian vodka off their shelves in a show of solidarity for Ukraine. In New York City, several bars joined the movement, including one bar owner in the South Bronx. Daniel Fitzgibbons, a bar owner at Bar 47. I asked Dan which Russian vodkas he sold before the boycott. We st- sold Stolly. I think that was the only one we sold, Stolly. Dan explains why he stopped selling the brand. For my own personal reasons, because I, I disagree with the war. Um, it was just mainly to, and mainly to highlight the fact that, you know, this is something that's wrong, what they're doing. And I suppose we're trying to protest that in our little way, I suppose. Anything that we could do to bring light to it. And, you know, when our customers come in, we can talk to them, you know, about why we don't sell Stolly or any of the other Russian vodkas. We have a couple of few Ukrainian customers and that they were happy with the stance and, you know, they get talking about it and, you know, about what, where they sit and how they feel and because they were born over there too, so they, you know, they're quite concerned about the whole thing. In March, Stoliknaya rebranded under their nickname Stoli. The move was the brand's own effort to better reflect their affiliations and their manufacturing and to distance themselves from Russia. Although the brand's history is in Russia, it is now independently owned by the company's CEO, Yuri Scheffler, an exiled Russian who has long been in opposition of Putin's regime. Moreover, Stoli has been produced in Latvia for over 10 years. However, the brand's popularity as a Russian vodka has overshadowed the fact that they are no longer Russian-affiliated. And Stoli is not the only company with Russian roots that is no longer Russian-owned. Smirnoff Vodka has been made in America since 2018. But even when it comes to truly Russian products, Dan still has reservations. Sometimes I still wonder whether it's the right stance to take the vodka off the shelf because you may be persecuting Russian citizens who work for these companies and that's not what we're trying to do at all. It's just mainly for the, the leadership of Russia. So that's one other thing that, you know... I sort of sometimes think about. As companies divest from Russia, like McDonald's and Coca-Cola, hundreds of thousands of Russians are at risk of losing their jobs, according to an article by NPR. And as Smirnoff is manufactured in Illinois, this affects the jobs of Americans as well. Boycotts have proved successful in the past. Like the 30-year boycott against Coors Brewing, which resulted in the company signing agreements to hire more people of color, fund scholarships, and invest in small businesses owned by minorities. There are also boycotts that in retrospect seem downright absurd, like the post-9-11 Freedom Fries debacle. Americans began boycotting the French because they opposed the 2003 invasion of Iraq. 
Then, what started in North Carolina spread across the nation, removing the word French from items like French fries and French toast, and replacing it with the word freedom. In hindsight, Americans might have done things differently. This is not to say that the boycott of Russian vodkas is absurd, but Dan raises a good point. Who do these boycotts hurt most? What outcomes are we expecting? And are our choices making the desired impact? As we just heard, transparency is about values. If you like to shop at your local farmer's market or make a point of buying fair trade chocolate, then you already know this. You want to know where your food comes from, how it gets made, and who profits. But what about when you go out to eat? How much do you really know about the inner workings of a restaurant? Chances are, even if you work in one, there's a lot you'll never see like finances. What would it mean to make the business of running a restaurant a little more transparent? Irene Lee is a James Beard Leadership Award-winning chef and entrepreneur who believes that doing just that can make restaurants better, for both diners and for the people who work there. Zoe Gruskin catches up with Irene to learn more. Let's say you like to cook. Actually, you love it. So much that you dream of one day opening your own restaurant. But you don't really know what that looks like. So you get a job in a kitchen. You figure you'll hone your skills and get an inside look at how to run a small business. Irene Lee says that's often the hope of young would-be chefs when they start at a restaurant. And then, you know, if they're chopping onions 40 hours a week, we're really not delivering on that for them. Like our hypothetical chef, she didn't quite know what she was getting into when she entered the food world. But for years before co-founding the beloved food truck turned restaurant turned dumpling company May May, Irene was passionate about cooking and eating. She says growing up, her family life centered around the dinner table. But it wasn't until my brother called me up when I was finishing my junior year of college, and he basically said, hey, have you ever thought about running a food truck? And I was like, no, literally never. <laughs> that didn't stop them. In 2012, Irene and her two older siblings launched Maymay, which means little sister in Mandarin. It was a hit. A brick and mortar soon followed. That meant the Lee siblings could serve up even more of their signature mix of traditional flavors, which celebrated their Chinese-American heritage, and more unconventional takes, like cheddar scallion potato dumplings. But it also meant a lot more logistics. And a lot more staff. In 2017, Maymay was hiring. Because, you know, all restaurants are basically always hiring. <laughs> and they found a great candidate. Her skills and goals were really aligned with Maymay's mission. But then she told them, You know, I would love to work here, and I think I would probably like it better than the restaurant where I work now. But over there, we have this really cool system where we can participate in running the business. And in fact, she already knew she'd be getting a big bonus at the end of the year because she'd run some initiatives that had saved money for that restaurant. So she turned down the job. And we were like, oh my gosh, that is crazy. <laughs> like, we'd never heard of anything like that before. But Irene was intrigued. She started learning more about a concept called open book management. It's a business strategy that invites in the entire staff. Let everyone see exactly what you're making and exactly what you have to pay. Every dollar owed and every dollar earned. 
the idea is basically if you engage and educate the team, they can help you run the business better. With some support from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts through the Workforce Training Fund program, Irene brought open book management to Maymay. For months, she gathered the whole staff for an hour of class each week to learn the ins and outs of running the restaurant. How to read a profit and loss statement, what the benchmarks are in our industry, how to analyze a menu, how to look at a sales report. Soon, the whole staff was meeting every four weeks to pour over the profit and loss statements. With their new training, the team was able to connect those numbers to their own experience at the restaurant. Maybe we had a period where labor was really low and they could say, oh, yeah, I remember like being a little stressed out because we were understaffed. Or they might see a period where revenue is really high and they might say, oh, yeah, I remember we catered all those weddings and it was so crazy. But but look how good these numbers are. Open book management at Maymay coincided with another transition. Irene's siblings were moving on to other projects, and Irene fully took over the business. She says bringing that transparency to the business helped her feel less alone. It was a little bit nerve-wracking, but mostly it was a relief. It's a relief to have the, the staff on my team um, and to be able to have them understand the challenges. There might be a lot of money coming through the register, but they could all see together where it goes, mostly to bills. Irene says getting on the same page with her staff had an impact. The first thing that I think I saw quickly is the the sort of leaders among our staff who really started to emerge because they were really interested in what they were learning. They had tons of ideas about how to improve the business. And even staff who were less enthusiastic about the classroom learning started to see the why behind decisions like pricing. Take, for example, one of Maymay's classic items, the Double Awesome Breakfast Sandwich. It was a fresh-made scallion pancake folded over two eggs, first poached, then fried, with some cheese and a garlicky pesto made with local greens. We had a cook who said, you know, I don't really understand why this dish is $7.50. Like, it's just an egg sandwich. And I remember when we did the unit on menu costing, they kind of sat back in their seat and said, oh, wow, when I look at what all these ingredients cost and then what payroll is and then what rent is, I can kind of see why something that is just an egg sandwich on the plate is actually much, much more than that. Of course, it's not usually staff who balk at menu prices, but customers. They might see an expensive item and think they're getting gouged. And I know that there are lots of owners who, like me, have felt like, you have no idea (laughs) what my bills look like. You have no idea what happens on my side of the table. That frustration is a big part of what inspired Irene to take her quest for transparency one step further. In early 2020, she decided to share the cold, hard numbers of her business, not just with her staff, but with the whole world. In early March, just before the COVID shutdown, she hosted an open book open house. Irene presented to the public Maymay's complete profits and losses of the previous year, then detailed it all online. Among the revelations, their total 2019 profit, about 2% of what they'd earned. And I think there were probably a lot of people who were like, oh my God, like, why would you ever tell anyone that you were running such an unprofitable business? But for me, it was like, I'm not going to do it alone, but I'll be the first one if we're going to change kind of the narrative about restaurant ownership. 
Irene hoped that lifting the curtain on Maymay's finances could spark a little more empathy and understanding from diners when they eat out. But maybe more importantly, she wanted to start the conversation for others in the business. There are so many things that go unsaid in our industry and that never get any light shined on them. And we all kind of live in a cone of silence about it. And I wanted that to stop. I wanted us to be able to talk about money and to talk about the challenges of restaurant work in a more open way. Irene says transparency in restaurants is good for both owners and workers, although it's definitely not the status quo. There are a lot of restaurants where things are never explained to you, and maybe the culture is such that you you don't even feel comfortable asking. And it's not just business decisions. Irene says often that lack of communication extends even to employees' basic rights. There were times at Maymay where people would come in and say, oh, wow, like you have paid sick time. That's so cool. And I would be like, yeah, it's the law. Where have you been working? <laughs> and have they not been, been educating you about these things? Open book management is promoted as a way to increase profits by giving your employees more of a stake in the business. But for Irene, transparency with her team is about much more than the bottom line. She sees it as the foundation for a healthy workplace, a way to avoid the adversarial dynamic between employees and owners that is all too common. I think that just the idea that we can value people more than the work that they produce is something that our industry really needs. And Irene does see a shift underway in the industry, though for the most part, it's not coming from the top. I think that people who work in food are realizing that they don't have to just take shit all the time. They're talented, they're smart, they're experienced, and they can have more. And so for employers who are trying to figure out how to do more, I think those are the ones that are going to survive. Irene says it gives her hope to see workers organizing for their rights. And restaurant owners, she says, better take note. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Our next story is about bisphenol A, commonly known as BPA. It's used in transparent plastic packaging, 
and is the subject of opaque public communication by the packaging industry and retailers. Let's tune in to the conversation Katie Kiefer, host of the show What Doesn't Kill You on HRN, had with Mike Shade, campaign director of Mind the Store, on episode 194. Safe for Chemicals Healthy Families is a national coalition of public health, environmental, uh, labor, community organizations from around the country. And then through our Mind the Store campaign, which is the effort that I lead, this is a national campaign that is working to challenge the nation's leading retailers, big retailers like Walmart and Target and Home Depot to get tough on toxic chemicals and everyday consumer products. BPA is one such toxic chemical that Safer Chemicals Healthy Families aims to eliminate. It's been widely used in food packaging since the 1960s and is often found in food can linings and polycarbonate plastics, which are used to make products like water bottles and even baby bottles. In the human body, BPA mimics estrogen and can disrupt our endocrine system. The packaging industry uses it to reduce contact between our foods and the metals from the can, but BPA can easily migrate out of can linings and into our bodies with potentially negative health consequences. The CDC has identified BPA over 90% of Americans that have been tested. BPA is uh, dangerous at low levels of exposure and has been linked to uh, a wide range of different types of harmful health effects, including Uh, breast and prostate cancer, uh, infertility, type 2 diabetes, obesity. Uh, So this is a major public health issue, uh, but one that we think is preventable. Well, who is responsible for keeping consumers safe from BPA? We can't see it. It's transparent. Mike believes that with our slow-moving legal system in the U.S., the responsibility should be on retailers. You know, if you think about a company like a Kroger or a Walmart, they have huge influence over those brands because most of their products are sold in their stores. But if what, you know, the, the fundamental question is, what, are, what about the alternatives and the alternatives are safe? Um, unfortunately, uh, identifying the safety of alternatives has been challenging. One, because uh, there are problems with how the FDA reviews and approves uh, new packaging additives, and they're, uh, they do a lot to protect what industry describes as trade secrets in this product sector. And so when we, um, when we wrote to retailers and brands, we asked them, you know, what, what, is, what are the alternatives that, are, that you're using? Most, most companies were not being transparent about what the alternatives that they're using This conversation took place all the way back in 2016, but the fight against toxic chemicals in packaging is still ongoing. More recently, in 2020, Mike Shade stated that, quote, in the past year alone, we've witnessed more than a half dozen food retailers from across the country committing to safer alternatives when it comes to food packaging materials. It is clearly possible to do. And yet some major chains like McDonald's, Kroger, and Costco have not stood up for the health of their customers or the environment, end quote. So there's still progress to be made. Though BPA makes up see-through plastic, the policy and politics behind it aren't quite so visible. Finally today, Annie Sherrick takes the assignment of transparency literally as she crafts a raindrop cake, which is, you guessed it, Transparent. Join her as she makes this simple yet fascinating recipe. 
Today we are making a raindrop cake. Cake might be a deceiving word. This dessert is essentially sweetened, gelatinized water. Gelatinized cakes are not a new phenomenon. Jello cakes with intricate flower designs inside are a popular party food in Mexico, and Vietnamese chefs have specialized in jelly desserts for decades. All across the world, different countries have made their version of gelatinized cakes. The raindrop cake is believed to have originated in Japan as an evolution of the dessert Shinjen Mochi and goes by the name Mizu Shinjen Mochi. Mizu, meaning water. This dessert gained its popularity in 2014 when King Senken, a Japanese confectionery shop, set out on a mission to make new forms of edible water. The water from the original dish was obtained from Mount Kayakoma of the southern Japanese Alps, famous for its lovely, sweet taste. I, on the other hand, will be using delicious, fresh, unfiltered New York tap. Without further ado, let's head to my kitchen. There are a lot of variations you can add to this cake, like injecting 3D flowers, but I'm keeping it simple as my goal is to make it look as close as possible to a raindrop. I'm using three ingredients, water, sugar, and agar agar. Agar agar is a vegetarian gelatin substitute produced from a type of seaweed. I also have on hand a circular ice cube mold. This will be used to make the cake into an orb shape about the size of my palm. Obviously, the size of a normal raindrop. While it's a basic recipe, this is my third try. Getting the balance of agar agar to water has been tricky. At first, I overdid it and the cake set but was not translucent, which of course was my whole mission. Then I underdid it and the cake was just a bowl of water. I'm hoping this attempt will be just right. I'm starting by boiling two cups of water. While the water is coming to a boil, I'm mixing a half a teaspoon agar agar with a little bit of water to dissolve it and make a slurry. I've added a teaspoon of sugar to the boiling water and now I'm whisking in the agar agar. Now, I'm going to just let it simmer until both the sugar and the agar agar are dissolved. Alright, now that everything is dissolved, I can pour my water into my circular mold. I'm tossing this in the fridge and I'm going to check back in in 30 minutes to see if my cake is set. Okay, pretend 30 minutes went by and my cake looks set, so let's unmold it. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. It really looks like a giant raindrop. I'm not gonna say I didn't have faith in myself, but I really did not. Is this how Martha Stewart feels on a daily basis? Cause this is incredible. So here's the rundown. The cake looks really cool. It's a perfect see-through orb. It feels weirdly mystical. Like it knows the time and place of when we all die. I just cut into it and the texture is really interesting. It reminds me of a very, very soft jello. Okay, now let's try it, the big moment of truth. Okay, it tastes mildly sweet. It's like a mildly sweet water. It's not bad at all, but yeah, it really just tastes like water. The cake is traditionally served with kuro mizu, similar to a dark syrup, and kinako, which is soybean flour, and has a peanut buttery flavor. I'm sure if I had these toppings, they would have added a lot more excitement to my water cake. Well, my final thoughts, I'm a fan. I think everyone should make this. If you're looking for a cool experiment, a vehicle for fun flavor additions, or just a more interesting way to hydrate, try out this translucent masterpiece, the raindrop cake.
That's our show. To learn more about the people and organizations featured in this episode, check out our show notes. Thanks for listening and tune in again next time. Special thanks this week to Bianca Garcia, Zoe Gruskin, Elba Tamara Rodriguez, and Annie Sherrick. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Kevin Chang Barnum, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer this week is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.